0: Turning your Pew Bibles, if you're using those blue ones in front of you, to page 488 and following. Oh, well, we're back to the book of Esther. And yes, God willing, we'll finish it by the end of this month. Esther chapter 8. page 488 in your pew bibles uh, verses 1 to 17 the whole chapter on that day king ahasuerus gave to queen esther the house of haman the enemy of the jews and mordecai came before the king for esther had told what he was to her and the king took off his signet ring which he had taken from haman and gave it to mordecai and esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, Notice her language. If it pleased the king, And if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month which is the month of sirvan on the 23rd day and an edict was written according to all that mordecai commanded concerning the jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from india to ethiopia 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the the citadel. And then Mordecai and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And second Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 1 through eight, page 1,150 in your pew Bibles. Paul's second letter to this church in southern greece second corinthians chapter 10 and verses 1 to 8 i paul myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of christ i who am humble when face to face with you but bold toward you when i'm away i beg of you that when i am present I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete, which, incidentally, is referring to the last day when Jesus will come back. The grass withers, and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you say together, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And thanks be to God. Our Lord, we will hear about judgment that you will send. Remind us that now, at this moment, this is a day of grace. It is a day of your long suffering. It is a day of your pity. It is a day of your offer, your free and full offer of grace unto salvation. So Lord, let us learn from this text in Esther. It is so rich. In fact, we don't use the word amazing very often because we take away the amazingness out of amazing. Now, this is an amazing chapter, and our Lord amaze us with it and change us by it. For the sake of Jesus, our great prophet, our great priest, and our great king. And we confirm that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. And please be seated. Okay. Okay. We're back to Esther, and there's three three things that you must keep in mind uh, as we come back to the book of Esther. Number one, if you went back in a time machine to this time period, which is some 500 years before the birth of Christ, so you can figure that out, about 2,500 plus years ago, if you went back in a time machine and you could be here in the kingdom of Persia, all these things that you read about, you would see uh, you know that month that's mentioned, or the two months that are mentioned in here. You'd see the Susa, the capital. You may have even seen Ahasuerus, the king. might have even seen Esther. But these were real people, real events, in a real time. So this is real history that we're dealing with. Number two, these things point forward. Uh, Jesus opens up in all of the scriptures, which were at that time the Old Testament, including Esther, the things concerning himself. And so we're not understanding any of the Old Testament properly if we're not looking ahead to Jesus and his coming and his kingdom and his return as well. Okay, So you've got to think about Jesus. Number three, a statement from that great philosopher who at this point did intersect with good doctrine, even though he didn't mean it that way, but that great philosopher, the late Yogi Berra, who said... It ain't over till it's over and this chapter is about the fact in the rest of the book it ain't over till it's over okay so those three things as we get back in the book of esther and remember reversals in a real sense the whole bible is about reversals from humbling to exaltation from death to life okay that kind of thing and and esther is full of these reversals not a fortune but reversals in God's providence. So things are reversing, but the clock is ticking for the Jews. Most of you know why. We'll be reminded of it in just a moment. The clock is ticking. There is a sword of Damocles over Israel at this time. So we are in chapter 8. And as you listen to chapter 8, what does this mean? have to do with you? The answer is everything. Okay? Wow. All right, so let's come to chapter 8, and just verses 1 and 2. This is another one of these reversals. And to re- remind you of the situation, look in your Bibles to chapter 3, and verses 12 and 13. I want you to have before you the edict that had been that had been issued about two months before this okay in esther chapter 3 and verses 12 and 13 the king's scribes under the uh, under the leadership if you will of now the late haman the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that haman commanded he hated the Jews, remember, was written to the king's satraps, those are provincial governors, and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. That's the sword of Damocles that was hanging over Israel at this time. Now, let's go back to chapter 8 and note the reversal. Two months later. On that day, two months later, King Ahasuerus gave to, note the reference to Queen Esther. Now, a little note here. As you get to the end of the book, Esther will not be referred to as the queen quite as much. She's still a queen. But someone else is going to take prominence. And that someone else is mentioned in this passage as well. But the king gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai, who had been responsible for preserving the king's life some five years before, came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. He was his, her cousin, he was a Jew, he had raised her, and the king took off his signet ring, which he'd taken from Haman, who was now the late Haman, and gave it to Mordecai and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman wow what a reversal I just one of many in the book but again again there's this edict okay there's this edict against the Jews which brings us now to verses 3 through 8 and you have Esther and the edict okay Esther and the edict Esther is the focus in verses 3 through 6 So Esther speaks again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan. Notice the language again. Haman, the Agagite. The Agagites had been against God's people for centuries. They had vowed to destroy them. The plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, which was necessary for her to make a a petition to him, Esther rose and stood before the king. Now, I want you to to, to notice Esther, and there's another reversal here already. It's a little different kind of thing. Haman had fallen at her feet, begging for his life. And now what? It is Esther falling before the king, but not just to plead for her life. You'll see how she goes way, way, way beyond that. But this is an interesting reversal. Watch her graciousness once again. Chapter chapter 8, verse 4. So the king holds out the golden scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before the king. And she doesn't even mention his name, even though he is her husband. But she says... If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the things seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, again the language, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. Here you see the, the, the graciousness, again, of of Esther. Good lesson. We don't use her as a moral example in everything, but at least here you do. Toward authority, you're always respectful as she is here. And, and then, not only is she gracious, but verse 6, so significant. So Esther, who had been told by her cousin, who's now second in command of the king, to keep her identity quiet. Notice what she says. Uh, beginning in in verse 6. For how can I bear to see the calamity, not that is coming to me as a Jewess, but the calamity that is coming to my people? She's fully out now with her being a Jew. Or how can I bear to see the destruction of, Of my kindred, she has come fully out and identifies with God and his people. And brothers and sisters, identification with God is not a lone ranger thing. You identify with God, you identify with his people. And when you identify with his people, you identify with God, like Ruth in an earlier book in the Old Testament. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And you see that here. And you'll see it a little bit later in the book in a little different way, but she's fully out. Her personal deliverance isn't enough. Your personal salvation is not enough either. Okay, So, um, verses 7 and 8. And this is now the thing about edicts. And, and here, the, the, the translations... I don't know how you can do any better, but but they don't really they don't really bring together what are basically three th- three things that are here. But let, let's read and you'll and you'll see what I'm getting at. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, "Behold, stop and think about this. Number one, essentially, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows." not because I thought he was going after my wife, which was the pretext used in the previous chapter for putting him to death, but now this is off the record, but he is saying here what really is in view because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Okay, that's, So that's one thing. He says, now Esther, look at what you've gotten from this. Uh, and You also have Haman's property, and I've hanged him because he intended to lay hands on the Jews, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. This, it doesn't exactly communicate this, but basically what Ahasuerus is saying, I really don't care what edict you write regarding the Jews. That's part of Ahasuerus. He's pretty much an unfeeling, insensitive, mean, and violent guy. He says, I don't care what you write about the Jews. But he says, you need to remember this. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. That's the thing about edicts in the law of the Medes and the Persians. It's true that he would lose face if he revoked an edict. But it was understood in this sovereignty, this anti-leader, that when he said something, and he decreed it and marked it with his signet ring, you don't change it very important lesson and and, and even as that's not pleasant this isn't but it's true there's an edict that god the great perfect sovereign has issued for the wages of sin is death the soul that sins it shall die in adam's fall we sinned all what is that edict For all of us by nature, there is an edict of death for our sin, and it cannot be revoked. Not because God is trying to save face, but because God is true and perfectly just. That's not a message the world likes to hear, but it is a message the world must hear. So so that's the thing about edicts, and there's an edict on all of us by nature. So you say, well, is there any hope (laughs) if that's the case? Well, yeah, the book doesn't end here. There is hope. And And that brings us to the next section, verses 9 through 14. What's the way you deal with an irrevocable edict? You come up with another irrevocable edict. And that's what you have in verses 9 through 14. Now, remember, there's eight months to go. And this is an empire, you're kind of in the center. You're basically in where Iran is now. And if you're looking over this way, this empire goes all the way over to India. And if you're looking this way, the empire goes all the way over to the northern part of Africa. And they didn't have transatlantic or international jets at that time. They had steeds. They had horses. And the horses are already going to give this edict to these areas. So notice the urgency here. The king's scribes are summoned at that time, in the third month, two months after the first edict, which is the month, which is the month of Sivan. And remember, if you went back in a time machine, you could look in a calendar, and you would see whatever Sivan mentioned. And the twenty-third day, an edict, another edict, is written, according to all, not that Haman commanded now, but that Mordecai, who took Haman's place, commanded. Concerning the Jews, to the satraps, those were more local, regional governors, and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. What does this sound like? This is like the early part of the book. Okay? In fact, the same language as the early part of the book. To each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews. In their script and their language, make sure the Jews get this. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Here's the edict. Then he sent the letters. Now, this is different now. These are horses that go much faster, okay? Uh, Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud saying that the king allowed, now this is what the edict says, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city from the empire, from India to Ethiopia, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, Children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month. So they got a few months to go, but remember this edict's got to be sent to the whole empire, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree or an edict in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. It's a technical term. We'll come to it in a moment. It's a technical term. I think only used one other place in the Old Testament. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, And the decree was issued in what would be right near Iran today, in Susa, the capital. Now, now, just just a a, a little note here. Um, This is an exact, almost exact parallel to what is given in chapter three, and the edict that Haman issued or had issued and sent to the whole empire. Okay, so it's almost an exact parallel. But it's notice here, it's especially to the Jews. Now, what do you make of this? You, you, you don't have an edict revoking this, this assault on people. You have another edict that says there can be another assault. Now, what do you do with that? Well, number one, notice the language. It was for their self-defense in verse 11. It was to defend their lives and the attack was on any who might strike them so this is self-defense if the persians attack them and of course the persians know if they do attack the jews they should get these edicts now about the same time you go ahead and attack the jews they have a right to defend themselves so that's number one number two is this phrase in verse 13 actually it's a word They'll be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. And that vengeance is not private vengeance. You go ahead and you, you shoot somebody you don't like and kill that person. That's private vengeance, and that's condemned by the Scriptures. But that's not what's in view here. If, in fact, the Jews were being unrighteously attacked... Then the Jews had the right to righteously inflict upon the people a punishment, a, a, a punishment, a legal punishment upon them. And so the text is very clear. Now, now, in other words, if you want, they were agents of God's justice. All right, so if they're if they're attacked, they can defend themselves, and if they're attacked and there's there's a killing of them, they have the right to become God's instruments even as the magistrate does today, for good. So that's that's the first thing. Okay, So self-defense and punishment for what's wrong. The second thing is this, though. There's no doubt that God is showing in this His seriousness about what He says in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, when He says, whoever blesses Abraham's seed, my people, I'll bless them. But, Whoever curses them, I will curse. And God is really serious about that. And that's an aspect of this, if you want to use the language, holy war, in which God is saying, don't you curse my people. I'm protecting them. And the third element in all of this, so you have, a, you have kind of a way to look at all of this, is... God, remember, has a purpose. He's he's got a big purpose. We're not just looking back in history. We're looking ahead. And God is going to bring a Redeemer, a Messiah, from the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. And so God is preserving his people. If that first edict were left... You have a full holocaust of the Jews. They're all done. And if all the Jews are annihilated, then where does Christ come from? So God God is, along with allowing the Jews this right to protect themselves and to be an instrument of his vengeance, he's also fulfilling his own promise. You curse my people, I'll curse you. But he's also looking ahead and saying, my messiah is going to come from these people and you're not going to wipe them out brothers and sisters never ever if you'll learn anything else from esther this never forget it god's plans will not be thwarted you. you got I mean, what else you have in, in esther look what you've got you have a king who's an anti king he's unfeeling he's cruel he doesn't basically care what you do with the people he wants his money you got haman who is in the line of people that want to exterminate the Jews, and everything is against them. But reversals. God reverses things here. And you see that in in, in this section by this decree that is issued. So God's plans can't be thwarted. Now that brings us to verses 15 to 17, and you got three more reversals in here, and they're quite fascinating. And and brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is the best (laughs) storyteller. He really is. It's, it's. It's. We mentioned this early on. I mean, Esther doesn't even mention the name of God, and yet there was virtually no debate among the rabbis of the Old Testament or even New Testament scholars later that this book is part of the Word of God. Why? No mention of God, and yet there's no doubt it's the Word of God. Just read it, and how perfectly. The decree that comes mirrors the first one, and how perfectly God reverses all of these misfortunes. And you see it here in these few verses, again, ultimately from the Holy Spirit. In verse 15, here's a reversal with respect to Mordecai. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king. Now, if you're reading earlier, Mordecai tore his clothes. Put on sackcloth and ashes, and he cried out when he heard this edict that his people and he himself and his cousin were to be destroyed. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, and with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. This is the language of the court. Remember early in the book we were describing the, the, the furniture and the, and the appointments of the court. It was really basically like the temple. And, and now all, all of the accoutrements, all of the garments, all of the strappings of royalty of this one who previously had worn sackcloth and ashes and was mourning, and and he was wailing in the streets. But notice here that the city of Susa shouted, and rejoiced. Uh, that one who was despised is now the one honored by all the people. Wow, you talk about a reversal. That that's just the first one in this section, okay? And and then in the second one that, that's here, verses 16 and the first part of 17, another reversal. The Jews, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. What a reversal from chapter 4, where Israel had, here's the language, great mourning and fasting, and weeping, and lamentation. Remember what we're called to worship with? Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Do you trust in Christ? He's the great king, and not a small part of his purposes are to turn weeping into great joy and delight, and to take ashes and turn them into dancing. And you see it, you know, again, the Holy Spirit teaching us over and over again the great reversals that will truly come to God's people. And if that's not enough, notice the reversal of Esther's fear. Chapter 4, she's dominated by fear. If I go to the king, tell him I'm a Jew, I'm not called to go to him, guess what? <laughs> I'm done. She's afraid. If I perish, though, I perish. Notice where the fear, how the fear is replaced by another fear. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, that doesn't mean that they were converted. I mean, some of them were. I don't. Know. That's not the point of the text. God was showing these people who, by an edict, had been given the right to kill the Jews, you better not. And that fear, that, 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 that belief in that edict, that, that belief and perhaps even the very hatred of the Jews that might have accompanied it, all of that is not just displaced by the fact that the people said, "We won't kill the Jews." They declared themselves to be Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Fascinating. But what about the holy War that's here? That's all very, very interesting. What about the Holy War? Because you have two edicts, one against the Jews, and not just and specifically, whole families, including children. And then there's an edict, and yes, it's for self-defense, and, and yes, it's to punish. But there's an edict that takes in basically all categories of people, including children, who might oppose the Jews. That, that, that's the holy war of the Old Testament. What do you do with that? We need to be honest about that, folks. Don't look at the scripture and say, well, it really doesn't teach that. It does teach that. But you've got to know how to interpret it, right? And how you apply it. Okay, a few thoughts on that. Number one. Nations have a right and a responsibility for self defense and for punishing evil. In fact, personally, I think that's one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit made sure, as it were, that these words are given here to defend their lives and to take vengeance on their enemies. Why? Because nations have a right to defend themselves and they have a responsibility to punish what is wrong. That's said almost explicitly in Romans chapter 13. The state bears the sword for what? As a punishment for evildoers and not for good. As a punishment for evildoers, to, to bring punishment on those who must be punished. But it also includes wars necessary to protect the people. So, so, so clearly that, that is in view here. But there's more to it. This, this is a judgment on a whole people, whether it be Jews or non-Jews. And some have called this, and I think it's a good term actually, an intrusion ethic. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, God points forward with previews of coming attractions with the coming of Christ. And you could think of all kinds of examples. The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. A picture of the coming of christ through a virgin uh, there will be one who will be wounded and afflicted and stricken and smitten for the sins of his people looking forward to christ and, and and so many other things there'll be a a great moses will be a prophet to his people a great david will be a king to his people we could go on and on and on and on and on would you have loved to heard jesus preaching on this he opened up in all the scriptures the things concerning himself but there's something else, because the scriptures teach there is going to be a holy war on those who oppose the Lord and his people. Yes. Okay. Just two texts, and I want you to see this. I want this to impact you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2 and following, and I'll tell you the, the page in your pew Bible so you can find it. I want you to look at it. I want you to see it. 1 Thessalonians chapter five and verse two, and that is page one thousand one hundred and seventy-four. I hope you can count that high. <laughs> one, and it's before 2 Thessalonians. Thessalonica is northern Greece, and Paul's writing to the first letter to the church. It was really a model of what God did as He worked among the Gentiles. Page 1174, speaking of the day of the Lord, and that is, that's the day of the Holy War, when Christ comes back. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware. This was part and parcel of Paul's preaching. Yes. Now we're told today, yeah, but you know, that's not being seeker-sensitive, That's going to turn people off. You won't get people. Who are you afraid of offending? God or others? You are well aware of this. This was part and parcel of my teaching because it's part and parcel of the teaching of the Word of God. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, which is another way of saying God's holy war will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. and they will not escape. You see the edict? The Jews were not going to escape from one edict, and those who opposed the Jews were not going to escape from the other edict. They will not escape. And then turn to the this is an easy one to find. The last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Very, very well. We have other readings in here. If you come to table of weights and measures, you've gone too far. Okay. So Revelation chapter 6. And in my opinion, this is the most fearful text in the New Testament. Revelation 6 and verses 5. Uh, Revelation chapter 6 and verses 5 through 15 through 17 page 1222 1222 2, 2. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free that means men women boys and girls Everyone means everyone. Hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And here is it is the most fearful phrase in the whole New Testament. And from the wrath Of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath, its holy war has come. And who can stand? The Lamb. The Lamb, Jesus. That is your hope. That is the way out of the edict. The soul that sins, it shall die. We'll tell you how specifically in a moment. It's by the Lamb. He is meek and lowly and gentle of heart. You spurn him, you despise him, you neglect him, you make anything else your priority and your love, and you will experience, if you don't repent, the scariest words in the New Testament. The Lamb who gave himself for the sins of his people will at the last day bring judgment on all who oppose him And it's not the grace of the Lamb. It's the wrath of the Lamb. That's how serious the Christian faith is. It's how serious Christ is. So so the the Old Testament is a preview of these things. Now that brings us in the third place to the fact there's got to be another edict. If you just have the soul that sins, it shall die then eat, drink, and be merry now, but it won't last. But there's another edict. There's an edict in which, by the sovereign decree of God, people are chosen and given to Christ to be his. And the Holy Spirit will come and make them new. But that edict is also an edict of a holy war. Because no one can escape being punished for sin. Punished in yourself or in this edict. Punished in a son who says, I'll take the punishment. That blood that will be spilt from all nations, it'll be my blood that's spilt. And that wrath that will be upon all of the nations that are not redeemed by grace, I'll take it. And that's the glory of the gospel and why the gospel is the only hope. It's not that you in Christ won't be punished. It's that you have been punished in the punishment of Christ. And that's why you can say there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Can you say that? I'm trying to emphasize again, see, to relate to our culture today. Why is this so important? Because heaven and hell are really important. And they're not just really important. They're real. And so you have the glory of this other edict and the son who bears it. And that son who bears it is the one that you fear and love. For fear of what would come, people joined themselves to God's people. And it's not wrong to be afraid of the wrath to come because it's fearful. There's also love. That's not mentioned in Esther, but it is in the New Testament. If anyone doesn't love the Lord Jesus, let him be anathema. Folks, do you love Christ? That's what this is about. Now, that brings us to the fourth place, and just we'll make it quick, but it's the obvious question people ask. Well, is there holy war in the New Testament? And I'll tell you right now, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> Let me give you the no first. Not, not like this holy war. Our nations have a right to defend themselves and to protect themselves and to minister justice. That's not a holy war like this. Not at all like you have in the New Testament. How can you say that? Because the New Testament does. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that those who believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world by him might be saved. That is now in this day of grace. And there's a message that Jesus has when we want to be like those, come on, be honest, in our own heart of hearts, we really want to declare holy war on fill-in-the-blank The Samaritans were not really good people. And the disciples said, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven on these. Fill in the blank for who you regard as Samaritans. Jesus rebukes them. Why? Because he came into the world to save Samaritans and those people that you despise and put your own holy war upon, Jesus desires to save them. Not all will be, but that's not your business. Your business is to see that they be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ and called. Not like that holy war, but there is a holy war in the New Testament. God brings judgment on the world in the flood. real flood covered the world. God brings judgment on the Canaanites. And you read about the Canaanites. We're kind of getting that close in our culture today, without exaggeration. Because it was largely a religion of sexual perversion. And pretty much a very harsh view of dealing with others. I'll put it mildly. Sodom and Gomorrah, go back in the time machine. And, and, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they weren't judged because they weren't hosp- hospitable. They were judged because of sexual perversion. And notice, I'm like, they were judged because of sexual perversion. I'm not saying that. But the fact of the matter is, that's what it was for. Yes. But all of those things, folks, are symptoms of the problem of the heart. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And as the Old Testament points forward to the New Testament, the New Covenant promises, I'm going to take away the heart of stone that creates sexual perversion and that... Creates all kinds of other Canaanite like wickedness. I'm going to take away those hearts and I'm going to give a heart of flesh. I'm going to give new hearts. And the holy war is basically to see people surrender to the Lord who gives new hearts, to the Lord who's also the great physician, who says, When you come to Him, I'll give you a heart transplant, I'll give you my own heart. That's why I tell people about Jesus. You call them to come to him. We, we bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Why? Because Jesus is Lord and you're not. And even your thoughts need to be brought If every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually, then your thoughts need to be controlled by Christ. And further, Ephesians 6, you take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you, you tell people what God says, and you, and you take the, the shield of faith, of the faith, and you hold it up before the fiery darts of the evil one, and you go every place with your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Why are you doing that? To deal with an enemy that will face the wrath of the Lamb... Unless the enemy repents. And you call them to that. thats your mission is to make disciples of all of the nations. And yeah, that is a holy war. It's the holy war that gets to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. And when people say, however they say it, to the Lord Jesus, I surrender all, then the Lord has won his victory. Quick illustration. Um, there's debates about whether dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the Pacific Theater in World War II in 1945, wh- whether that was legitimate or not. And in my view, this is not the, this is not the preacher, but this is Bill Shishko saying, giving his opinion. As horrible as that was, I believe it was absolutely necessary or that war would have gone on and on and on and on and on. And, on. and there's evidence of that. But it was horrible. That, 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 that holocaust, that destruction of, of thousands and thousands and thousands of people was terrible. But it was necessary to break the back of the power of an enemy. That's what Christ's death and resurrection are. But that's not the rest of the story. General Douglas MacArthur, who understood, because his father had been an ambassador to Japan, he understood the Oriental mind, the Eastern mind. He was appointed as the leader over a Japan that was being rebuilt. And regardless of what you might think of General Douglas MacArthur, he did a masterful job there. How did he do it? He did it by a very wise administration of everything in that government. He did it by winning the hearts of the Japanese leaders and the Japanese people. He did it by a supreme consideration for their welfare. And the change was amazing. That's what the kingdom of God is. God is so concerned for your eternal welfare. And he seeks to win you by the promises of the gospel. And you follow him. And your eternal welfare is promoted. Okay, so, so that's something of a very imperfect illustration, but something of a picture of what's here. Well, let, let's wrap all of this up for right now. Because really, I'm not talking about history. We're talking about your heart. Is your heart surrendered to one who's far, far, more wonderful than Esther or Ahasuerus or Mordecai. Like Mordecai, he now has all authority in heaven and on earth, not just in Persia. Like Esther, he pleads for your well-being. Forgive them, oh, forgive his wounds cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. And the father is not like Ahasuerus who says, I don't care. He says, you welcome you welcome them to come into my kingdom. What a... See, see again, you have the anti the greater than Esther, the greater than Mordecai. But never forget the big message. There was an older writer, and I'm paraphrasing it because the language is, is a little bit uh, more florid than we would have today, but this is the point that he made. He was actually commenting on Sodom and Gomorrah. How appropriate for... Today, in various places in our country. But he was writing about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he said, The Lord pities, waiting to be gracious, as if he did not know how to smite. At the last day, he smites, as if he did not know how to show pity. I want that to sink in, because that's what the gospel age and the last day are all about. The gospel age. The Lord pities right now, waiting to be gracious as if he did not know how to spite. The Lord waits to be gracious to us. The last day, he smites as if he did not know how to show pity. Let's pray. Our Lord, we were reminded that justice and mercy meet at the cross. If there is no cross where the punishment for your people is taken, then there is no justice if we're just let go. At the same time, there cannot be mercy. If sin and wickedness are just overlooked, then you're neither just nor truly merciful. But what a wonder that this puzzle that we can't figure out on our own, the pieces fit together, and the cross in which the God-man became sin for us, though he knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Esther. Thank you for the whole Bible. But it it seems that as the Old Testament is drawing to a close and you are knitting together so many of the themes uh, that have been sown into the Old Testament, we see more and more the glory of every aspect of the kingdom of God and of Christ the King. Lord, please continue to be gracious to us knowing that you are gracious with no thought of smiting us at all lest our hearts be hardened and we come to the last day when all you will know is not pity but smiting in that last holy war. Lord, make us, we pray, afraid of the wrath of the Lamb. Amen. Amen. Amen.